the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today we'll hear a conversation with Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. That's coming up. Later this hour, straddling into the second hour of today's program. And we'll share another Advent reflection from Hannah Anderson's book, Heaven and Nature Sing. Sort of unexpected. So that's coming up later in the second hour as well. Well, the holidays are rapidly approaching. I probably didn't need to tell you that. Thanksgiving and Christmas, they meld together. As consumerism reaches a feverish pitch as the weeks of November drift into December. Black Friday becomes Black Thanksgiving night and soon... There will be no Thanksgiving pause before the madness begins. I mean, there's barely one now. Well, as um, we reflect on the season, this is an opportunity for us to participate in Giving Tuesday. It's a step away from the consumerism and an opportunity on November the uh, 29th uh, to remember those organizations that are ministering to those who struggle among us. Um, And I want to encourage you to take full advantage of that. Some of the favorite organizations, Union Gospel Mission, the Pregnancy Resource Centers, whether that's in Portland or in the Vancouver area, there's Redeeming the Nations, wonderful organizations. And if you've ever thought, I would love to support them, perhaps today is the day that you say, yes, I'm going to do something constructive and uh, help them help others in our community. So let me encourage you to do that and take full advantage of giving Tuesday, which is uh, today an opportunity to reflect on nonprofit organizations around our community who are doing great work. I didn't mention Portland Fellowship, another uh, favorite organization you might want to consider. All right. This Friday, December 2nd, a judge in Portland is going to hear from three plaintiffs and they're looking to stop Measure 114. An emergency motion was filed in federal court to try to stop the new law. The law is set to go into effect on December 8th. The state of Oregon has until this Wednesday uh, to file a response to the emergency motion for a preliminary injunction. Now, if you might recall that Oregon voters passed Measure 114 during a midterm election, and that was just barely passed, it will uh, require people to get a permit, take a training course, and do background checks for firearms in the state of Oregon. Well, using prior Supreme Court rulings as a guide, the legal challenge to Measure 114 will very likely succeed. The Oregon Firearms Federation has filed that suit in the federal district court in Pendleton, challenging Oregon voters' recent approval of Measure 114, the controversial ballot measure concerning firearm sale and usage. The most controversial provision is the ban of large-capacity magazines. A large-capacity magazine is defined under the measure as those with more than 10 rounds of ammunition and allows a shooter to keep firing without having to pause to reload. Well, this definition is misleading, of course, as magazines with the capacity to accept more than 10 rounds of ammunition are standard issue for many firearms, uh, the critics say. But as a political matter, the overbreadth of the definition may have assisted with its passage. That is being 
challenged. In any event, the lawsuit asserts that the effect of Measure 114 violates various state and federal constitutional provisions as applied to the so-called large magazine provision. The challenges are correct. Well, both the Oregon and U.S. Constitution protect the right to bear arms. However, Oregon courts have concluded that the right to bear arms is not synonymous with the Second Amendment. Oregon protects the right to possess firearms Techno- um, technology similar to the uh, those commonly available in 1859 when the Oregon Constitution was approved. However, firearms based on more recent technology, such as automatic and semi-automatic firearms, are not automatically protected. This would appear to allow for the stringent state prohibition, and that, of course, is what the courts will ultimately decide. A state law is subservient to federal law, and federal law provides that Second Amendment protections apply to the states. Additionally, the Supreme Court has determined that the Second Amendment extends to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, so long as the firearm is not unusual or dangerous. Well, the Supreme Court has uh, created a legal review threshold which gun restrictions must satisfy. The first step is to assess the provision at issue and the normal and ordinary meaning of the Second Amendment. Again, in the next few days, we'll uh, find out whether or not Oregon's law will be challenged in the Oregon Supreme Court. Well, people in downtown Portland and other lower elevations of the Willamette Valley could see a dusting of snow on the ground this week. Some areas of the valley saw a wintry mix of rain and snow this morning. A cold weather system is moving through the Pacific Northwest, making for a pretty chilly final week of November. High temperatures in Portland are set to uh, average 5 to 8 degrees below normal. Yesterday morning, there were reports of snow and slush um, around 1,000 feet just outside the town of Sandy, Some people in West Portland shared videos on social media showing a light dusting of snow on the ground this morning. And there were also reports of some snow falling in areas including Hillsboro and Forest Grove and icy spots on the roads around the Portland metro area. Uh, Snow levels held above 1,000 feet on Monday will rise to 2,000 feet and higher tonight, holding uh, valley temperatures near 40 degrees. On Wednesday, the heaviest rain will end before sunrise as the uh, front passes to Interstate 5, the corridor. Heavy showers will follow during the day with snow levels lowering to 2,000 feet or slightly lower. Showers will decrease as colder air arrives on Wednesday night. Thursday morning, we'll uh, mostly see snow showers over the valley and the Portland metro area. Scattered dustings of snow at the lowest elevations will be possible in enough Uh, If enough shower activity persists, according to KGW, any sticking snow would melt during the day as the valley temperatures warm into the low 40s, ending the threat of wintry weather this week for elevations below 1,500 feet. The National Weather Service has issued a wind advisory for the Willamette Valley in southeast Washington. South wind gusts could reach 45 miles an hour starting at about 8 p.m. tonight through 5 a.m. on Wednesday morning. Well, as temperatures start to get colder, nonprofits across uh, Portland are calling on the community's help for donations of warm winter clothing that they can distribute to people who are struggling, many of them homeless. Uh, the Blanchet House, Union Gospel Mission, and others, that particular ministry serves about 14, or I should say, uh, nonprofit serves about 1,400 to 1,500 meals every day to clients that live on the streets. And they say they really need donations of winter jackets that are in good condition. People can drop the jackets off at uh, various locations. Chad Dietrich is the current director there. And 
um, says he's uh, had to sleep outside before in the winter, and it's very uncomfortable, as you can imagine. Rose Haven is another organization on Northwest Gleason Street that's looking for help. And as I mentioned, the Union Gospel Mission is also accepting donations of worn clothing, um, uh, preferably in good condition. Courtney Dodds with UGM. Uh, said that they want to make sure all their clients stay warm all winter long. We have a need for men's, women's, and kids' clothes uh, and warm clothing. We give away a lot of those items. It also it's also possible to support these and other local organizations by donating through two one one info. You can check that out. It's a private, community based nonprofit funded by state and municipal contracts, foundations, donations, community partners, and so on. It serves Clark, Cowlitz, Scamania. Uh, and other counties in Washington, as well as the entire state of Oregon. So remember those who will be very cold in these next few weeks. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. Also at the uh, conclusion of the program, Heaven and Nature Sing, Hannah Anderson's Advent devotional. Share one of the stories from that devotional. Well, the Senate today passed the Respect for Marriage Act, a measure that would provide federal protections for same-sex marriages. The upper chamber uh, voted 61 to 36 to approve the bill. It's expected to clear a final vote in the House next week, after which it will head to the president's desk for final approval. Democrats have said the bill is necessary after a Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in his concurring opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization earlier this year that the court should reconsider its decision in Griswold versus Connecticut, Lawrence versus Texas, and Obergfell versus Hodges, which established a right to contraception, privacy in the bedroom, and same-sex marriage, respectively. Well, the amendment adds, uh, added religious freedom protections to the Respect for Marriage Act. It cleared a procedural hurdle earlier this week, paving the way for that final vote that took place uh, today. Uh, the revised legislation ensures that nonprofit religious organizations won't be forced to help facilitate same-sex marriage. Any religious organization, according to the language of the text, shall not be required to provide services, accommodations, advantages, facilities, goods, or privileges for solemnization or celebration of marriage. The bill also excludes poly... Uh, poly- Let's see, there's so many of them now. Polygamous marriages from protection, specifically stating that the union must be between two individuals. Um, meanwhile, Senator Mike Lee has said uh, the current religious liberty protections in the bill were severely anemic and largely illusory and said the new amendment is insufficient. Sixty two senators, including 12 Republicans, voted two weeks ago to end the debate on the bill and to advance it. Well, there are some objections that have been raised to the bill from within the Christian community, primarily centered on the concern that religious freedom is going to be undermined by it. And here are some of the uh, reasons that there's concern being raised by this now uh, passed in the Senate legislation that will return to the House for a final vote in the uh, in the coming days. Let me get my papers all together here. Uh, It protects explicitly faith-based organizations. Now, this, as one lawmaker said, is anemic. But again, um, the Respect for Marriage Act and the proposed amendments, Senator Tammy Baldwin says the bill sponsor unveiled an amendment on the 15th of this month designed to address social conservatives' concerns that outlined 
Uh, in Section 6 of the legislation, it declared that nothing in this act or any amendment made by this act shall be construed to diminish or abrogate a religious liberty or conscience protection otherwise available to an individual or organization under the Constitution of the United States or federal law. Nonprofit religious organizations, and I went through that. Additionally, the amendment states any refusal under the subsection to provide such services, accommodations, advantages, facilities, goods, or privileges shall not create any civil claim or cause of action. I would like to think that would be the case, but I can almost guarantee... Um, That will not be the case. Anyway, after Jesus completes a sermon that turns the world upside down, all 12 disciples, including Judas, are ready to follow him to the ends of the earth. But problems remain. Well, I'm not actually I'm not getting distracted by that. Anyway, Section seven asserts nothing in this act or any amendment made to this act shall be construed to deny, alter any benefit status and so on. Another concern, multiple amendments have been introduced, but um, Mike Lee's, the one amendment authored by the senator um, that proclaimed that the federal government shall not take any discriminatory action against a person wholly or partially on the basis of that person's um, speaks or acts in accordance with a sincerely held belief or moral conviction that marriage is or should be recognized as a union of one man or one woman uh, was not added to the act as passed earlier today. Uh, Lee led a group of 21 Republican senators who wrote a letter to their colleagues urging them not to support the Respect for Marriage Act unless his amendment was included in the final version. The letter noted that while Obergfell did not make a private right of action for aggrieved individuals to sue those who oppose same-sex marriage, the legislation before the Senate will. It goes beyond. Um Senator James Langford, he introduced an amendment containing similar language restricting the federal government from engaging in adverse tax treatment against organizations based on their views on marriage. His amendment also clarified that for purposes of this act and any amendment made by this act, no faith-based organization shall be considered to be a government actor because the organization entered into a partnership with a government. Senator Marco Rubio, he filed an amendment to strike the private right of action from the Respect for Marriage Act. He claims that religious organizations that don't explicitly offer religious services, such as orphanages, will, uh, women's shelters and schools, could be subject to punishment under the bill. And again, uh, those were not included in the now passed act in the Senate. Another concern has received a mixed reaction from the faith community. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has expressed opposition to the Respect for Marriage Act with Cardinal Timothy Dolan of the Archdiocese of New York and Bishop Robert Barron of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester, writing a letter to lawmakers echoing the concerns of religious liberty advocates. Dolan serves as chair of the USCCB's Committee for Religious Liberty, while Barron, he leads the USCCB's Committee for Laity, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. They wrote, the Respect for Marriage Act's rejection of timeless truths about marriage is evident on its face and its purpose. It would also betray our country's commitment to the fundamental right of religious liberty, they wrote. Well, the bishops rejected the suggestion from other religious groups and senators that the amended text sufficiently protects religious freedom, describing the provision of the act that re- that uh, relate to religious liberty as, again, insufficient, stressing that the USCCB's ministry const- ministries rather constitute the largest non-government provider of social services in the United States. They warned that the legislation would put the ministries of the Catholic Church, people of faith and other Americans who uphold a traditional meaning of marriage at greater risk of government discrimination. The letter included an appendix outlining the potential adverse impact 
of the Respective Marriage Act and the USCCB's ministries. Well, according to the appendix, faith-based foster and adoption care agencies could be forced to place children with same-sex couples. Faith-based housing providers could be forced to treat same-sex couples as married for the purposes of housing replacement or housing placement, rather. And faith-based social service agencies, similarly, Uh, Serving immigrants could be forced to treat same-sex couples as married for the purposes of housing and other services, and religious organizations could be forced to hire and retain staff who publicly repudiate the organization's beliefs about marriage. And while the Respect for Marriage Act has received a cool reception from the USCCB and evangelical leaders like Franklin Graham, other major religious organizations have embraced the bill. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for example, also known as the Mormon Church, published a statement before the initial uh, cloture vote characterizing the legislation as the way forward. Uh, Another objection or concern, the bill has support among the American public. Polling in recent years has shown a majority of Americans support the protection of same-sex marriage, but may not fully comprehend the um, potential of this particular act to undermine religious liberty. Again, it passed in the... um, Senate earlier today, an amended version. It passed in the House months ago, I think way back in the summer. Uh, An amended version will go back to the House. It's expected to pass there, and the president is expected uh, to sign it. This could certainly signal, um, again, uh, the retraction of religious liberty uh, in the United States. We'll continue to follow that story. Well, on a lighter note, the United States soccer team defeated Iran in a winner-takes-all match at the World Cup in Gutter on Tuesday. The team will advance to the round of 16 at the World Cup after a 1-0 victory over Iran. The win comes days after Iran's state media called for the United States to be removed from the World Cup after the United States Soccer Federation supported the anti-government protesters by posting an edited version of Iran's flag on its social media platforms. For 24 hours, the Federation posted the Iranian flag without the emblem of the Islamic Republic to show support for the women in Iran fighting for basic human rights. Iran and the U.S., as you well know, have had no formal diplomatic relationship since 1980. We're going to take a quick break, but we will return in just a few moments. Also a reminder, Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die, will join us in the final segment of this first hour and into the second hour of today's program. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. And in our final segment today, Heaven and Nature Sing. It's an Advent devotional by Hannah Anderson. We'll share one of the entries. Hey, there's still time to see Portland's Christmas Spectacular, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, celebrating its 60th season. This is the final weekend, Friday Two performances on Sunday, or excuse me, two performances on Saturday and two performances on Sunday. Bring the family to see this wonderful Portland holiday. This concert brings the sights and sounds of Christmas while sharing the reason for the season. There are, oh, let's see, five more performances this weekend at Sunset Church in Northwest Cornell Road in Portland. Details and tickets and information at kpdq.com. In fact, you can find all kinds of useful information there about what's going on. So check it out. 
Well, protests ground to a halt Tuesday across China as President Xi Jinping sent security forces into the streets to crack down on the newly inflamed opposition to his long-running zero-COVID policy. No significant rallies were held in Beijing, while the combination of cold weather and the threat of state violence deterred residents of Shanghai and Nanjing from considering any further demonstrations. Well, the unrest has been the most visible display of anti-government activity in decades. Protesters have held white papers as symbolic displays challenging the Chinese Communist Party's censorship throughout the pandemic and have in some cases explicitly called for Xi's ouster. Uh, I wanted to speak up for a long time, but I did not get the chance to. One Hong Kong protester told the AP, the people in the mainland can't tolerate it anymore. Then I can't as well. Well, the latter, the, the latest uh, series of lockdowns comes as COVID-19 outbreaks have spread to more than 80 cities across the country, which account for 50 percent of the nation's economic productivity, as well as ship 90 percent of its uh, exports. The New York Times reports the unprecedented wave of protests began after 10 people died in a fire in the city of Urumqi. Um, prompting speculation that COVID quarantine measures prevented firefighters from reaching the blaze and those who were in the blaze from escaping. Xi has uh, doubled down on China's zero COVID approach despite the grueling economic toll. Youth unemployment has now skyrocketed to a record 20 percent as nationwide economic growth forecasts have continued to fall. The Biden administration's response to the demonstrations has been noticeably muted Uh, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, insisted Monday that the president's not going to speak for protesters. These protesters are speaking for themselves. And other news, the untimely death of a member of Congress with the death of Virginia Democratic Representative Donald McEachin. Uh, The new Congress will begin with a vacancy until there is special election to fill that seat. A reminder, you cannot be appointed to the House. McEachin's uh, untimely death does not give some breathing room to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, in his quest to become Speaker. The new Congress will begin with 434 members. The the, uh, magic number for McCarthy continues to be 218, an outright majority of the entire body. McEachin um, became uh, the seventh member elected to the 117th Congress to die. And by the way, we all will unless he comes back before on the world stage, a demonst- as demonstrations uh, against the regime in Iran hit day 75, many of the protesters actually hoped that the U.S. men's national team at the World Cup and the Biden administration um, would send a signal of support to the protesters. Some feel that an Iranian loss or draw in the upcoming game against the U.S. now uh, concluded game would hurt the regime on the world stage and give fuel to the protesters to fight on. Walking off. Uh, Yee, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, went viral on Monday after he stormed out of an interview when being confronted about his anti-Semitism. The embattled music so-called superstar has been under fire over the past several weeks for his rhetoric towards Jewish people, particularly his tweet declaring he was going Death Con 3 on the religious group. In woke woes, the GOP is pushing back against Biden military policies as the defense bill vote looms and freezing the amount. New England's high heating costs are being exacerbated by the federal government. Immigration lawsuit. The Supreme Court will hear arguments in a case challenging Mayorkas's deportation memo and cash for coverage. FTX founder uh, has given money to liberal media before the company's collapse. And it makes you wonder why they're not covering the story. Not happening. MSNBC analysts deny the crisis, claiming the border is not being overrun. Nothing to see here, folks. 
beat the virus. The New York Times and CNN once claimed China won the pandemic. Now Chinese citizens are revolting. No word from either the New York Times or CNN. Unlearning wokeism, a recent college graduate is slamming her cult-like college education and the time it took to be deprogrammed. Tis the season. This Giving Tuesday, you have an opportunity to strengthen your family legacy and give back. Taking flight, the Air Force plans to unveil a new $2 billion stealth bomber. The White House issued a weak statement on the Chinese protests, and President Biden tapped Congress with addressing the impending railroad strike. Uh, President Biden on Monday asked Congress to intervene and block a railroad strike before next month's deadline and the stalled contract talks. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said lawmakers would take up legislation this week to impose the deal that unions agreed to in September. The Speaker said the House would uh, not change the terms of the September agreement, which would challenge the Senate to approve the House bill without changes. The New York Times weighed in. Frozen train lines would snap supply chains for commodities like lumber, coal and chemicals and delay deliveries of automobiles and other consumer goods, driving up prices even further. Stocks tumbled amid the Chinese protests. They fell Monday as social unrest from China prolonged COVID restrictions, weighed on markets and pushed down oil prices. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 513 points or 1.5 percent. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq Composite each shed 1.7 percent. Over the weekend, demonstrations broke out in mainland China as people vented their frustrations over Beijing's zero COVID policy. Senator Cornyn, he introduced a bill to curb the purchase of microchips from companies with ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, While China may have recently closed the military capability gap, Senator John Cornyn, he has introduced legislation, a legislative language rather, that would spoil the Chinese Communist Party's predator, predatory military plans in one fell swoop, building off the important work of former President Donald Trump, who imposed 25 percent tariffs on Chinese made microchips. The senator's amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act would restrict the U.S. from purchasing microchips from companies that work with the CCP. Iran threatened its own soccer team to behave or else their families would be imprisoned or tortured after players protested by choosing not to sing their national anthem. An Oregon retailer has permanently closed up shop after the 15th break in, saying our city is in peril. The owners of a Portland, uh, Oregon clothing store have closed the shop, blaming unrelenting criminal behavior and a note left on the door that also warned the far left city is in peril. Rain's PDX has been burglarized 15 times in the last year and a half. Its owner uh, says that damages from the break-ins, looted inventory and the lawless environment on which um, uh, of what um, may be America's most liberal city prompted them to give up. Her insurance company won't even cover losses at this point, she said. Balenciaga has uh, apologized for recent child pornographic ads in their campaign. Uh, they faced widespread backlash over two recent ad campaigns involving children. One of the ads, the designer's gift collection campaign, featured children posing with the brand's teddy bear purses, which critics pointed out appear to be, um, well, they are inappropriate. I'll leave it at that.
California has been found to be releasing pedophiles the same year they're incarcerated. They're getting less than a year in prison time after a range of horrific acts, including raping kids under 14. Analysis of a California database of sex offenders shows thousands of child molesters are being let out after just a few months, despite sentencing guidelines. More than 7,000 sex offenders were convicted of lewd and lascivious acts with a child under 14, but were let out of prison the same year they were incarcerated. Uh, the Post Millennial says California in recent years has made its laws against sex offenders much more lax, thanks largely in part to the state senator, Scott Weiner. 2020, Weiner authored a bill that would end discrimination against LGBTQ young people by providing exemptions from the sex offender registry, regardless of the fact they have offended children. God help us. Well, Elon Musk uh, claims Apple is threatening to remove Twitter from its Apple store. Musk on Monday uh, went on a tear against uh, top Twitter advertiser Apple after he said the company threatened to block the social network from its app store without explanation and mostly had uh, stopped advertising on Twitter. If the company were to block Twitter from its app store, new users would be unable to download the Twitter app on their iPhones and iPads and existing users would be unable to access updates. Elon Musk says Apple has also threatened to withhold Twitter from its app store, but won't tell us why. He questions whether or not they support free speech. Well, we are going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Benjamin Sledge will talk about his book, Where Cowards Go to Die. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Americans' veterans are rightly held up as heroes in our country's first line of defense. But how these men and women transition back to civilization, back to civilian life, is, well, too often overlooked or misunderstood. Well, in his latest book, Where Cowards Go to Die, which releases, by the way, on the 5th of January, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient Benjamin Sledge reveals the true horror of war from the front lines and the struggle many veterans face when reclaiming, well, life after battle. And while uh, serving a portion of his time under the Special Operations Command, he fought to keep his humanity amid the killing fields of Iraq and Afghanistan. But war never leaves its participants unscathed. Through brutally honest storytelling, where cowards go to die reveals an unflinchingly honest port- portrait rather, of war that few dare to tell, vividly capturing the reality of the men and women who learn to fight without remorse, love each other without restraint, and suffer the high cost of returning to a country they no longer feel like home in. Benjamin Sledge is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, serving most of his time under special operations. He is the recipient of a Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals for his actions overseas. Upon returning home for more, he began work in mental health and addiction recovery. He has authored several articles, two books. He lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado with his wife, and there are two children, a daughter and a son. And we are just uh, delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Benjamin Sledge. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the show. You know, my first uh, instinct is to say thank you for your service. But reading your book, I feel it's more appropriate to say thank you for your sacrifice, because what you explain in your book really puts into perspective that it's not just a singular event that we're thanking you for. It's a service that really continues to uh, require a heavy cost to those who are engaged. So thank you for your sacrifice. 
Well, I very much appreciate your support. Well, let me ask you about the title of the book, Where Cowards Go to Die. It runs contrary to what most of us tend to just naturally think about those who choose to serve in our, our nation. What motivated you to, to come up with this title to describe not only your story, which is intensely personal, but a story that really reflects the experience of so many in our nation's armed forces? Right. Uh, you know, I, I started out with the end in mind before I even began writing the book. And really, it came down to my own struggles and the struggles of many veterans who fought in the, the longest running wars in the history of the United States. But less than 1% of the population served in Iraq and Afghanistan, which saw no end in sight for us. And um, what I discovered was, is as I was transitioning into the civilian world and, and trying to, to figure out who I was, what my identity was, what my purpose was, um, there was a lot of me that didn't want to confront the past pain, the trauma, the hardships, the, the, the grotesque and, and uh, destruction that I saw like on the battlefield, and it was easier to run. And so the thing that I discovered was in order to really face and grow as a human being, I had to aptly kill the coward in me that wanted to stay safe. And, and that's like the flip side, honestly, of the human condition most times. It's when we refuse to give our lives in something greater, when we uh, don't sacrifice for other people, when we don't. Um, operate in compassion and humility, but instead embrace vice, um, we, we effectively die as cowards because we're unwilling to um, bleed the areas of our life that are, are actually killing us. And the, the opposite side, the flip side of that coin is when I went to combat, I had to learn how to sacrifice for something greater than myself for the guys around me. And then when I came home, I had to, uh, again, confront who I was, what I was capable of, and, and kill the coward in me that wanted to stay safe. And so exploring that through the lens of Iraq and Afghanistan, and then especially homecoming, which is missed in so many books in the aftermath mm-hmm. of, of 10 years and dealing with this, um, that, that's really where the title came from. Is that the fault of the military not preparing um, warriors who are, by virtue of their decision to serve, um, are, are brave is it the fault of the military for not preparing you for that transition, or is it just inherent to the nature of the kind of engagement that you've, you're coming out of, that this is something you have to, to do on your own? Um, it's a little, it's, it's layered. It's a layered response. So, so let me explain that. There, mm-hmm. There's definitely fault that lies on behalf of the military. It's kind of like once you leave the military, they're like, all right, good luck, uh, you know, Go out and get them, Tiger. And, and it really doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And there's actually a 2012 study by Gibbons and colleagues where they looked at um, veterans. And they discovered that veterans who don't find a new mission, a new purpose, a new unit, a new affiliation, whether that be religious faith or uh, just you know, some place to connect with, uh, intramural sports, they will struggle the rest of their lives. And the big reason behind that is, is in the military, you have a mission, a purpose, a direction, you're told what to do. Uh, And then on top of that, you have this camaraderie, this brotherhood, this sisterhood, where people have your back and you have theirs and would gladly be willing to take a bullet for you. And then you enter kind of a, a different environment where those rules get thrown out the window. And as we've seen with the great resignation and everything that's going on in our nation, people got are tired 
of bosses trampling over them um, or trampling other employees, trampling over each other to get to the top. And so when you enter that workforce, it's, it's a culture shock. You're like, oh, my gosh, nobody has my back anymore. Um, and so some of that is society's fault. Some of that mm-hmm. is effectively the military's fault. So it's kind of a both end answer. You write in your chapter, The Frayed Ends of Sanity, you take an 18-year-old kid and strip him of any identity he's ever had. You shave his head, take his clothes, and issue him fatigues so he looks like everyone else. You remind him that he's, and you're rather graphic, worthless uh, until he adapts to the harsh environment. Then you tell him his enemy is subhuman and longs to end his livelihood and freedom. You hand him a rifle and convince him death on the battlefield is glorious. When your friends die, you have... Um, uh, you harden further and swear vengeance. Soon, nothing matters except the man next to you and your rifle. And again, that's a perspective that those of us who've never been in the military haven't really been able to fully appreciate. And then to transition from that experience back home has to be far more significant than most of us um, would have thought. Yeah, it's it's an extremely jarring experience uh, because what they do is they break you down and mold you into the image that they want, that of a warrior. Um, And a new identity is formed. And and you often realize that there's a lot that goes in there that isn't necessarily, you know, they're they're doing it to condition you. And you realize some of it's just garbage. But the thing is, is everybody looks like one another. Everybody's uh, focused towards the same mission. Um, towards the same purpose, and uh, then you go overseas, right? And and you're in an environment where you're effectively dealing with the gross underbelly of human nature, war and mm-hmm. combat. And the public is so far removed from that that when you come home, um, you know, it, in the longest running wars, like I said, you have most of the populace was was kind of checked out. War was just kind of this background noise, this this low thrum um, until it you know made the news cycle. And one minute you're overseas and you're literally on a flight. You're you're there in Iraq or Afghanistan, and then what? The next you're home and you're there. You usually arrive during the holiday season or something's going on, and people are like, "Oh, it's pumpkin spice latte season." And you just had people trying to kill you. And then everybody else comes back and is like telling you to celebrate. And it's, it's really kind of this culture shock and yeah. overload for you. And so out of that, um, you know, it, it, and it's funny you bring up that line. Uh, that has been the most highlighted line by uh, early beta readers and, and other veterans uh, who have felt, a, you know, connection with that piece. They go, man, this is really profound because that's the way that I felt. Yeah, that's, that's very descriptive. Now, tell us a little bit about your early days in the global war on terror. What changed between Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh, so, I, you know, a little bit of background. I joined in 1999 for the college money um, and because I had a very long history of uh, a family in the military, tracing back as far as a general under Napoleon. So it just kind of runs in the blood. And uh, and then September 11th happened. And so Afghanistan, to me, initially was like kind of this, uh, this is what I'm here for. The, you know, we, we saw an attack on our country. We responded and we effectively took care of that within the first six months, really, uh, very much in the same manner that we did in the first Gulf War. But then we kind of lost the ability to provide a clear objective and goal as far as what we're going to do. And our foreign policy just kind of became this massive debacle. And so we we began to just kind of 
slap uh, lipstick on the pig of war. And, and it, when I was there, by the time I got there in 2003, it was starting to transition less of like, we're fighting Al Qaeda. They're kind of more over in Iraq right now. It, even though they were everywhere, the Taliban and Al Qaeda were still there. Uh, it became more about, okay, well, we have all these poppy fields and we have the Silk Road trade. We need to. And so the DEA was over there uh, dealing with like the drug trade. And then it transitioned to minerals and commodities. And Afghanistan is this mineral rich lithium environment. And we just, we kind of continued to change the narrative. And what we were sold initially. Uh, just really kind of sharply declined. And and that became very difficult for a lot of us to stomach without, you know, being in the military, having a clear objective and purpose. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what are we doing? Are we fighting? Are we, are we stabilizing this country? Are we protecting the Afghan people? And we just we didn't really know, and it confused so many of us. And then Iraq kind of became the same way. And when we left, um, all the progress that we fought for, um, especially while I was in Ramadi, just went to nothing when ISIS uh, reclaimed the, the ground. And then, you know, you look at the debacle of the withdrawal from mm. Afghanistan in August 2021, and many of us were left wondering, OK, what did we do for the last 20 years here? And uh, it, it, it was it was difficult to process that. I tell you what, I need to take a break. Hold that thought. We'll continue in just a few moments. Once again, we're talking with Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of a book that I would encourage you to read, Where Cowards Go to Die, if you want to really understand the cost of war to the individuals who fight it. We'll be back after news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Benjamin Sledge. He is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He served most of his time under special operations. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Most recently, he's the author of Where Cowards go to die. Now, just before the break, I was asking you to tell us about your early days in the global war on terror. And you were talking about the changes between Afghan, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq from your vantage point there in in the, the, the theater of war. Certainly for those of us looking on or following on the news, uh, we experienced some frustration. But the level of frustration you must have had seeing things change and not having a clear objective, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish answering that question if you had wanted to add to it. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, obviously, we left behind many of the people that uh, supported us during yes. the Afghan war, um, our interpreters. And so I, I recently was working with an organization and um, working to get interpreters out of the country. And the, the special immigrant visa is just an absolute nightmare process for for our interpreters to get stateside. And these are men and women who risk their neck and their life. But um, one of the things that that was really profound is I asked one of the interpreters, I said, did what we do matter? You know, did did we help? And he there's there's always a silver lining to everything. And one of the things that I I do want to clarify is he said, I, I lived under the Taliban as a kid, and he said it was awful. He said, you know, women couldn't have uh, an education. Uh, they were batting zero, zero, zero for zero for that. And then, you know, suddenly you have these, these girls' schools built. Um, Kabul uh, absolutely explodes um, as far as, you know, um, literary and people thinking and coffee shops, uh, road, electricity, technology, he says. 
he said, but here's the thing. Uh, he said, in America, you give your kids 18 years under the roof, right? And he said, you gave us an additional two years um, to, to kind of figure stuff out. And he said, and we didn't stand up our, on our own and fight. And I think that's, that's kind mm-hmm. of the gut punch for like a lot of us is it was like, man, we, we really worked so that you guys would stand up and take agency over your country and create it into whatever you wanted it to be. We don't want it to be America 2.0. We just want it to be what you guys desire of it. And, and they just didn't. And that was, I think that was really devastating for a lot of us um, just watching that happen. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate hearing his perspective, uh, having been left behind there and having lived uh, under the the Taliban rule as it exists today. Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but one of the points of your book is transitioning away from a war zone and the tremendous um, cost to uh, making it possible to succeed in war and then transitioning um, to reengage into society. Do you think civilians can help in part of that process to restore veterans? What do we need to know about that that might help us to be part of the solution rather than uh, either disconnected from the solution or part of the problem? Right. I I actually train a lot of organizations on this that that are um, civilian in nature but are looking to work with veterans. And one of the things that I, a story that I tell is when I got home from Iraq uh, in my late 20s, one of the things that helped, the very thing that helped me readjust was not other members of the military. It was two civilians. And people are shocked when they hear that. And one of the, the, the key components is, is this. When I, when I first returned home from Afghanistan, uh, I didn't want to become one of those vets that didn't talk about their experience. And so I started telling everything. The problem was, is I'm dealing with morally ambiguous situations. And like many first responders and doctors and uh, members of the military, we develop gallows humor uh, because mm-hmm. of the, the trauma and the hardship that we endure. And so immediately I begin telling these stories and I'm like, and so this insurgent's head explodes. And I'm laughing about it, right? Because I don't, I don't know how to process that trauma. I don't know how to process what I've seen. And so it becomes this human defense mechanism uh, for, for many of us. And I can see the way that people become uncomfortable. It's not what they say. It's their body language. And it's, it's the fake smile or it's the shift in an uncomfortable position. And it communicates to many veterans, you are a monster, um, in our minds. It's, n- it's not intentional on their behalf. They don't know how to do that uh, or, ha- or how they should respond, but that shut me down. And so I just, I never talked about war. And then I went to Iraq and, and I came home and I didn't talk about war for years and years and years and years. And really it was these two civilians who began to open up to me uh, and begin to share about things that they had gone through in their lives that were very difficult and very hard. One of one of my friends had gone through, uh, and I just met him, and he just began to open up because suffering is a universal language that we all speak. Our uh, circumstances and situations may be different, but we all have something that we've been through that we can relate to. And so he he shared about how um, you know his parents had died in rapid succession within three months. His dad was an alcoholic, and he kind of loved and hated him. And then on top of that, his parents were hoarders. So he was dealing with like a lot of shame. His marriage was in in trouble. And so he was in counseling. And at the time I was like, oh, we don't do counseling. You know, we're strong military men. Um, 
And he really just changed my perspective. And as he began to open up to me, I became more comfortable opening up to him. The problem is, is that everybody thinks that they can fix veterans by diving into their trauma first. And, and they meet him and they're like, okay, tell me about these worst experiences of your life or your, your killing and maiming or whatever it is, these hardships. And that's totally inappropriate. And yet we think it's okay to do to our veterans who come home from war, um, asking them absurd questions like, how many people did you kill? And I realized that people have, are curious by nature, but you're asking them about a, a very traumatic incident. So the way that I, I train um, civilians is that I go, you are often the best line of defense and resource that we have because we want to tell our stories. We want you guys to understand. And yet we, we just feel a- alienated by like the body language or you expecting us to open up first when, when really we want you guys to build a, a common bridge between us first so that we feel safe and seen and heard before we get into kind of those those dark parts of our life and the more that um you do this the more that we're we're gladly and happily will tell some of the things that we've been through and as we we begin to see see how you respond and trust you the more we begin to open up and it bridges the civilian soldier divide mm. so we sort of earn the right to bear some of the burden that you carry in the stories and the experiences that you've had. Absolutely. There's a story in the book about um, you getting injected. And this is really goes to the fact that uh, the, <laughs> the culture doesn't really understand military service in the first place. But uh, you talk about being injected in the face with Novocaine and then having everyone punch you as hard as possible in the face. That's just one example of military <laughs> culture. <laughs> Can you help explain? <laughs> Yeah. um, So that was a a night in Iraq. And that's the thing. People don't (laughs) military culture is totally absurd. It's like hyper violent at times and then also very compassionate and sensitive. You know, when your friends die, you're weeping and crying and holding and hugging one another. And, you know, the deepest um, secrets of their lives, you know, they're about their family life because you're, you're in this combat experience together and you're sharing everything, but you're also involved in like all these, you know, hijinks and shenanigans. And so, um, one of my, uh, my corporal at the time, he, he was starting to fray and, uh, I was like, man, we need to have a little bit of fun. And so we, go, <laughs> we go to this dentist's office cause we had made friends with the de- the dentist on base You're going to have fun, go to the dentist's office. That's the first thing I think. <laughs> We're going to have fun, go to the well, dentist's office. <laughs> they had they had brought in some bootleg wine, so we're all like drinking a little bit of wine and then I'm I'm sitting there and I you know, I get these bad ideas and uh, I'm like, "Hey, do you guys have laughing gas at first? And they're like, "No, that's under lock and key." I was like, "What about Novocaine?" And they're like, "Yeah." And uh, so eventually we just start, like start injecting each other in the mouth and then we, it turns into like fight club. And I'm like, I want you to punch me in the face as hard as you can. And they're like, okay, that sounds incredible. <laughs> and then uh, by the end of the night, you know, we're all throwing darts at each other. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of that level of just insanity that, that you deal with when you're in those environments and you, you end up doing dumb stuff to blow off steam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we need to take a break here at the top of the hour, but we'll continue our conversation. I want to talk a little bit about your mental health and how you have moved forward and uh, your your faith journey as well. So we'll get into that when we return. Once again, we're talking. Let me make sure I 
put you on hold and don't hang up a second time. We're talking with Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. The book is published by Regnery. It'll be released on the 5th of July. And it's a helpful reminder and perhaps teacher to those of us who don't fully understand uh, what war is like for those who are actually in them and what it's like to try to transition back home to a place that may seem less familiar than it once did. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with author Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. It vividly captures the reality of the men and women who learn to fight without remorse, love each other without restraint, and suffer the high cost of returning to a country that no longer feels quite like home. It's a book that will give you a clear understanding of what it's like to be in war and what it's like to try to transition back into civilian uh, civilian life. Well, let me ask you, um, you uh, paint a picture of war that's unlike other memoirs. You, you focus on mm-hmm. and reveal the darker side of combat and the brutal truth of how depraved men can act instead of solely a heroic and rated PG account. Why is it important for the civilians back home to better understand the nature of war as it actually exists, as opposed to the Hollywood version? Yeah, I I mean, we get sold a romanticized version. Uh, Pretty much everything. uh, (laughs) Yeah, and especially of combat. Like it Mm -hmm. is, I mean, people's guts out on the ground, heads exploding, stuff like that. Like that, I mean, the difficult part is, is, some of the movies do encapsulate this, but some, realistically, a lot of the books that are coming out right now about Afghanistan and Iraq are, are kind of broken in that respect. It's it's about the heroics. And, uh, you know, the joke inside the book industry right now that we, we kind of tease about is if you're a Navy SEAL, you get a book deal, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of what's what's come out. And a lot of us, uh, you know, we we were just. Your regular soldiers who had to deal with life or death calls, uh, morally ambiguous situations. Do I, you know, shoot this woman or child? Um, you, you know, how do I uh, protect my family back home from the gross atrocities that I'm seeing? And and out of that, we we don't really talk about like what war costs in the long run of what's happened to our veterans. I mean, we have a astronomical. Um, suicide issue among our veterans. Uh, it was, you know, it was 22 a day at one point. Now it's 17.6. But even then, the, the VA didn't really start tracking it until the 2010s. So it, it could have been even higher. And one of the reasons why is we became institutionalized by um, these repeated back-to-back deployments with no uh, buy-in from the American populace, no draft. You had 0.86% serve uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years, uh, whereas in Vietnam, you had 7% of the population serve, and in World War II, you had 11% of the population. And, and like I told you earlier, war kind of became this background noise while everybody continued their lives. And we um, came home and really kind of struggled within that and I don't, I don't think you can paint a really cohesive picture of combat in the military without including the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I wanted to make it true to the, the, the language, the nature, the hijinks, like the, I explained with the dentist, <laughs> that, um, that really encapsulate the military so that 
those of us who felt alone um, by our experiences go, if you want to know more about me and I've never, you know, and I can't talk about it, then you need to read this book. And so my hope is, is that ultimately it paints that cohesive picture and really gives our average veteran a voice. Uh, You write about your own decades long search for faith and how you found it through uh, the most unlikely of circumstances and your your search for mental um, mental health groundedness, if if you will. Can you talk a little bit about your journey? Yeah. um, So when I I grew up in uh, Oklahoma in like the buckle of the Bible Belt and uh, grew up just kind of this environment where like everybody was Christians, what you did if you wanted to have like a good business. And much of my upbringing in the 80s was very, very similar to like Footloose, you know, don't drink, don't dance kind of environment. So by like 17, I started getting exposed to like kind of these televangelist style preachers and was involved in like, um, you know, this like prosperity gospel where everyone's having mansions and stuff. And yet your average parishioner is really struggling to make ends meet. And I was just like, man, I think this is all a bunch of hogwash and poppycock. So I I quietly left the church. I just didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to have those conversations. And when I went to war, I really began to struggle with the human condition because what I saw, and we love to act, act enlightened in our modern era where we're like, oh, we're so enlightened. We're not as barbaric. And I'm like, really? We, we can destroy the entire world now, whereas we couldn't. And we literally have no idea why we would do that. Plus, we have drone strikes where you can kill entire groups of, of people with the push of a button from a Connex box in Nevada. You, you're telling me we're, we may be more advanced. We've just also figured out how to kill each other better. And, uh, and that seeing you know, the destruction of war and collateral damage uh, of human beings that were innocent really messed with me. And so I began to search out, like, what is the purpose of, like, the human existence? Um, and not like, you know, what's my purpose, but what's our purpose as homo sapiens? Like, uh, where are we supposed to build, cultivate, you know, the solar system or whatever? And so I searched, you know, throughout religious means and, um, I, you know, secular humanism. And finally, you know, when I got back from Iraq, I was just crumbling and falling apart because I, did, I didn't know how to deal with what I was going through and what my purpose, direction or meaning was, which is what many veterans uh, struggle with because they had that in the military. And eventually my uh, atheist buddy takes me to church of all places. And uh, I, I still have no idea how that happens. But um, there I just I really begin to hear a message that I never heard growing up and it, it transformed my life. And then I had people who were actually Christian, not just in word, but in action. And mm-hmm. it, that blew me away. It was like the first time I actually met real Christians. And I was like, man, these people really care about other people. They care about the marginalized, the oppressed. Um, but I thought, you know, because of what I had been a part of, I deserve to burn. And the the messages really just begin to sink in. And so I began, you know, reading a lot. I read philosophers um, ranging from, uh, you know, the, the theologian, great theologian and fantasy novel uh, writer of our time, C.S. Lewis, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is killed by the Nazis, to guys like uh, Luke Ferry, and um, who, who's a French philosopher, um, to, you know, the Stoics, uh, Epictetus, and uh, Marcus Aurelius. And and really, as I begin to kind of compile that and, and deal with my past, I realized that I had to confront not just the moral 
and the physical and the emotional things that I went through overseas, but also the existential, why am I here? And then the spiritual aspect of war. And this is the part that many people miss. War is a very, very spiritual experience and people miss that. And I, you know, the best way I explain it is, is um, most of us believe inherently that we know what's going to happen after we die, uh, you know, based on our thought process. You know, for me, as a, as a Christian, it's like, okay, I go to heaven, spend eternity with Jesus kind of thing. Uh, for other people, it's nirvana and reincarnation. For other people, it's the great nothingness. But there is no formative consensus board as far as like what happens with you when you die. And none of us really know. Here's the thing. You point an M4 carbine rifle at a man and you pull the trigger, you send him to the great unknown. And that's like playing God on some level. You have the power to protect life and to take it away. And there's something just inherently deeply spiritual about that. And so I had to, to really wrestle with these, with these emotions and, and uh, the spiritual aspects, the existential, the moral, uh, the philosophical. And, and when I was able to kind of land the plane, I found that uh, for me, I found Christianity and, and I realize it's not for everybody, but it was, a, it was a emotionally uh, satisfying and intellectually stimulating for me. And so uh, it really being involved in that community um, just really kind of helped to reshape me. And then I, you know, got into counseling. I got into mental health work because I wanted to impact other veterans and have them search for, and find their meaning too. And, and not have an agenda as far as like, okay, you have to believe as I do, but um, how can I help you? Because my faith informs what I do. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. We'll continue a final segment here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back with my conversation with Benjamin Sledge, author of uh, the book you need to read, Where Cowards Go to Die. It's published by Regnery. Now, this is such a fascinating account of life in the military, life after the military and assimilating back into civilian life, what do you hope your readers will take away from a read of this book that tells a very um, uh, uh, clear and graphic look at what uh, our military men and women actually go through in order to preserve our freedom uh, and to serve their country? Uh, You know, it's funny. I've, I've gotten that question, I think, more than anything from, you know, other veterans, they're like, you know, what's, what's the purpose of writing this book? And for me, it's it's to give you the voice that you haven't had or the ability to explain things that you find difficult to talk about. And ultimately, for civilians to understand that, um, unfortunately, war is uh, an inevitable part of the human nature. It's It's been around for eons and thousands of years and there's just something weird inside you know the human condition that that pushes us um this in this manner and i want them to see the the astronomical cost of what what really happens and that the fact you know that growing up i i I would always quote you know that oh freedom isn't free and i believed in this like jingoistic nonsensical version of that but as i come as I came to discover fighting overseas, I was like, man, it really isn't like for, for everyone in America to stay at home, to not have their sons and daughters drafted, 
um, to continue to enjoy their Starbucks seasons and um, just go about their day-to-day lives without a care in the world as far as the the wars. And, and this is the thing that we forget. We live in a democracy, so therefore we vote to put people in positions of power who will either justly or unjustly um, send young men and women from their country to die on, on the battlefield. And out of that, there has to be some sort of collective responsibility. And because, you know, if you live in any country in the world, you have to submit to their governing rules and bodies uh, based on the country that you that you live in, whether that's uh, a dictatorship or a democracy. And so there is kind of this collective um, responsibility that we all have. And, and I want to bridge, as I said earlier, that civilian soldier divide so that people have a very clear and concise picture of what happened the last 20 years and what it cost our veterans who endured the brunt of it. Do you think your experience is dramatically different from the experience of soldiers in World War II, for example? You write about your relationship, I, I believe it's with your grandfather, uh, and the camaraderie mm-hmm. that the two of you feel. Is the experience that you had in the theater of war, of war the longest running war, has that made it dramatically different from what your grandfather, for example, and and others in your family experienced? Or is it essentially the same experience with just some subtle differences in terms of where and what munitions and so on? Uh, I like to tell people all wars are the same and all wars are different. Um, War at its its very basic level is, is, you know, uh, men and women killing each other um, and fighting over, uh, you know, to gain ground. And so in some ways, our, our wars were very, very similar, uh, almost identical. It was, it was bizarre for me because my grandfather was, fought with the 82nd Airborne. And then that's who I was attached to when I first went into Afghanistan. He never talked about war. Um, the the one thing that he said when I got back home from Afghanistan before he died was he literally just looked at me and said, now you're a man and left it at that. And, and I think really, honestly, what he was saying is like, now you know what it's like to sacrifice. And now you know what like the killing mm-hmm. fields are like, um, because most of everybody else doesn't. But at the same time, you know, my grandfather um, and even my wife's uh, grandfather, they, they endured four years of war, not 20. And they came home and they had to get back to their lives. And you had much of the population that was there supporting that war effort. It was constantly on the news. It was before you went and saw a movie, they did war updates. It was in everybody's mind. People were working in factories. They were buying war bonds. So it, it was this collective consciousness of, okay, we, we have got to win this thing. Whereas we went into Afghanistan and we're like, we got to win this thing. And then Iraq kicked off and it just, it it just went on forever. And then everybody just kind of forgot about it until, you know, the withdrawal of Kabul. And I, and I think the thing that somewhat enraged me the most was when we left, all of a sudden people suddenly cared about the 13 service members that were killed, but they didn't give, Hmm. they, they didn't care at all about my best friend who died. Um, they didn't care about the other guys I knew that had died. There was there was nobody putting out you know beers for them at all the restaurants and you know saying oh these these brave souls and I'm like what about my friends that endured the past 15 years? What, where were you for them? And that was very difficult and very hard 
to navigate through. And so it was it was different because of the fact that there was just kind of a, a different mindset. Now, granted, I am not mad at the the American populace at all. And I need to clarify that I am so thankful for their support and they have been unbelievably generous. But it's still it's very difficult for a lot of us just because of the fact that we we endured so much and was asked so much and yet we still can't get accurate health care coverage by the Department of Veteran Affairs. It's it's a debacle. A lot of us are dying of cancers, um, even in my, inside my unit, um, because of the chemical exposures and the um, uh, burn pits that we endured overseas. That, that, that you know, we talk about taking care of our veterans, and yet we come home and we're kind of some of the most messed up people. Um, because of what we experienced. And yet when you had World War II kick off, they, they created like all these new programs. It's like get a VA loan for a, for a home, you know, veterans preferences and, and stuff. And it feels like that just that that wasn't the case. And in many ways, um, you know, employers to some degree shied away from yeah. reservists and National mm-hmm. Guardsmen um, as far as hiring them because they knew their number could get punched any day. So it war was the same war was different yeah well i tell you we're just we're out of time but i i appreciate your willingness to put pen to paper and to ex- to share your experience and to give us a better appreciation for and understanding of uh, as I mentioned earlier, the sacrifice that you and others have made, and I would encourage our listeners who want to have a better understanding to read Where Cowards Go to Die. It's published by Regnery and will be out and available on the fifth. Can they pre-order the book? Yes, you can pre-order on any major uh, outlet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's it's all out there, IndieBound. Um, but yes, it, it, it drops July 5th, and uh, you can even head to some local bookstores and pick it up. Great. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Through the um, end of Advent, right up until Christmas, at least for the days that I'm here, we're going to share from Hannah Anderson's book, Heaven and Nature Sing, Advent Reflections to Bring Joy to the World. The book is published by B&H Publishing, and I would highly recommend it if you're looking for a great reflection during this season leading up to the celebration of the birth of a Savior. This one is titled um, The Serpent. I know that might seem a little odd, but hang with me. Kill it again, Charlie. Kill it again. I'd heard the punchline a dozen times, but it never failed to send me into a fit of giggles that my grandma, the strongest, bravest woman I knew, would be the source of it, made it even funnier. She'd grown up in the mountains during the Great Depression, the middle child of 10. Her people were farmers who understood the goodness of hard work, laughter, and family. So once a year, we'd make our way back to their hills for a reunion where the siblings swapped memories and told tales to one another and on one another. I remember passels of cousins by varying degrees, games of softball, an outhouse, a creek, and table full of food, potato salad, ham, butterscotch pie. But my favorite time for stories was curled up in my grandma's bed on the nights when I was allowed to stay uh, to stay over. Our days together were for work, cleaning, blackberry picking and gardening. But the nights were for storytelling. She dressed me in layers and socks and tucked me in under the piles of blankets, sweating. I'd throw them off, but she'd put them right back on, determined that I wouldn't be cold. Then in the darkness, I'd whisper, Grandma, tell me about the time. 
I had a whole repertoire of stories to choose from, the time she'd overturn the churn and spill the family's cream for the week, or how she walked three miles to high school in good weather and boarded in town in bad. But one of my favorite stories was when she and her older brothers were out making hay under the blazing summer sun. She'd been assigned to the top of the wagon, and as her brothers threw its pitch, the, the pitchforks of hay, she'd stamped them down to make room for more. The system was working fine until a tremendous black snake came flying through the air straight at her. An unfortunate hitchhiker on somebody's fork of hay. As quickly as it had come up, she sent it back down where her brothers stabbed it. Uh, but uh, satisfied with nothing less than the reptile's eternal damnation, she screamed, kill it again, Charles, kill it again. And all fairness to the snake, seeing one of a one in a hayfield isn't uncommon and most uh, are entirely harmless. There's the black racer, long, shiny, darting here and there, the northern ring-necked and its yellow collar, the eastern garter, a striped snake that apparently to someone somewhere once resembled the aforementioned accessory. You will occasionally spot more harmful snakes, the kind that send a shiver up your spine and have earned the aversion we carry against the species as a whole. Timber rattlers make their home in wooded areas, blending into the underbrush, while their neighbor, the copperhead, prefers more open habitats like overgrown fields, dilapidated barns, and rock ledges. When you encounter a snake, however, the best thing to do is nothing. Even a venomous snake would rather move along than bite you. So catch your breath. Calm your heart and watch it for a few seconds before it glides out of sight. If you do, you'll see one of the most unexpected and unnerving spectacles in the animal kingdom. According to Genesis, after God made the man and the woman, he placed them in a garden, which they shared with the animals. For a while, everything was good and beautiful and exactly as God planned. But a twist was coming, a twist in that form of a winding, coiling, curling reptile. One day a snake shows up and with subtle hissing words convinces them to do the one thing God had forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Immediately a curse descends. The man and woman are banished from the garden and nothing is the same again. For its part in the death and the deceit, God sentences the snake to its unique movement. You are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. But then he promises this, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call this passage the first announcement of the good news because it foreshadows the birth of the one who will undo the serpent's deceit along with its lethal aftermath. Eve's hope, our hope, was that this coming promised son would crush the serpent and all it represents, even as he suffers in the process. But here's something curious. The news of a Redeemer wasn't given to Eve, not directly at least. It was given to the snake, and it was given in the form of a warning. Judgment is coming. The power you hold over the earth will one day be taken from you. So for the snake, Christmas is far from good news, or is it? Of course, the snake in Genesis 3 is not simply a snake, not like the ring-necked or garter snakes in my backyard. Revelation 12.9 speaks of an ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. And elsewhere in Scripture, snakes represent sin and our own bent toward falsehood. Romans 3, for example, says, There is no one who does what is good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They're, they deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. In this sense, we are also the hissing, deceitful ones. We too creep and crawl along the earthly plane. We too face certain judgment. But here's something even more unexpected than the fact that Christmas was first announced to a reptile. In John 3, Jesus likens his redemptive work to a miracle that occurred centuries earlier when God healed the Israelites of poisonous snake bites by having them look to a bronze serpent on a pole. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, Jesus says, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And just like that, those who once followed the snake into damnation now proclaim the grace of Christ in salvation. Those cursed by their own disobedience are now blessed by the obedience of another. I wonder about this. I wonder how the snake, so long associated with sin and death, could be associated with Christmas. I wonder until I remember the heart of the Creator for His creation, the God who knows every sparrow that falls, who numbers the stars, who holds the seas in his hand. Would this same God let his creation be taken from him? Would he so easily give up what he has created and called good? No, this is a God who redeems. This is a God who restores, both for those who have suffered under the deceit of sin and those who have deceived others. Because one day evil will be crushed under the heel of the promised son and his blessing will flow far as the curse is found. And when he does, the snake that was once a sign of sin's dominion will become a sign of our complete and final redemption. In Isaiah eleven eight and 9, the prophet tells us of the day when the promised son will finally and fully reign over his creation. In that day, an infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain." The hope of the snake is our hope. We who with poison on our lips have deceived and been deceived to us. The promise is given a savior has come and a savior will come. And when he is lifted up, all who look to him will find life everlasting and eternal. Again, from the devotional written by Hannah Anderson, heaven and nature sing. We are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Remember, today is Giving Tuesday, an excellent opportunity to give generously to those who serve. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.